Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by a guest speaker. Good morning. Good morning to those on, where's the camera? Live stream? I don't even know where that is. Okay. Well, hey, uh, my name is Efren Perdomo. I'm the RTI Student Development Director over on the other side, which is our uh, ministry training school that we run here. And also, I'm a part of the teaching team as well. Um, You may recognize my mustache, but you may not recognize who I am. So I always feel like I still need to introduce myself. Um, Well, hey, could you give it up for our worship team um, this morning? Doing such a great job. Uh, One more shout out. Um, I don't know if many of you have been using our Bible curriculum study guide. Um, Two people who have just worked hard on that. Carrie Wood, if you see her around, and then also Sarah Morrow. I've just done an amazing job um, building that together. So uh, yeah, give them a hand too as well. All right. Well, by far, one of the most abstract but also applied concepts that we deal with a daily basis is timing. I'm sure that you're aware that the element of timing shows up in a lot of the activities that we do. Music, sports, dancing, our work weeks, heck, even sleep. Many of you might not know this, Um, But I took tango lessons a couple months ago. Um, That is not me, by the way. I think a lot of people have been getting that confused. Um, Tango is one of those things that requires precision in one's timing. My assumption was that because of my Hispanic heritage, I would be a natural. (laughs) Dare I say, a prodigy. This, of course, was not the case. I would often force my steps, being too quick, or lag my foot as I led. I would look at my partner as she had a face of agony, knowing (laughs) that she just wasted 50 bucks on being my partner. And as I trotted through the class, every class we had, I had an epiphany hit me. I have no rhythm. And as I considered this predicament, I spiritualized my experience, as pastors do. And I said, you know, this is somewhat symbolic of how I am with God's timing. I recognize the cliche, but extremely true. Timing is actually quite difficult for us when we don't have the divine rhythms of God. We seek to step forward too quickly or fail to step at all in some cases. Our eternal clocks have difficulty with waiting or patience. John Mark Comer highlights this well when he says, but the clock changed everything. It created artificial time, the slog of the nine to five all year long. We stopped listening to our bodies and started rising when our alarms droned their oppressive sirens. When the setter rhythms of work and rest, it did so under control of God. But the clock is under the control of the employer, a far more demanding master. 
Our slow but gradual release of God's hand on our lives has affected our trust, our understanding of God's timing. Don't get me wrong. God's providence will always bear a weight of mystery. But what has suffered is our trust in the patient space of that intermediary time. Thus, for us as believers, um, God's lack of response or intervention in our biggest hurts and pain often leads us to have doubt in his character, his providence, and maybe in some cases, his existence. So the question that bears an answer for us as believers then is, how then do I allow faith to grow and mature in the patient space of God's timing? As we continue on this sermon series on the journey on the road, our third spot lands us in Bethany. As you'll see here on the map, Bethany is a village on the farther side of Mount of Olives, which will be there pretty soon about three kilometers from Jerusalem on the road to Jericho. Here's a modern depiction of Bethany alongside Lazarus's tomb, which gives you a hint of where we'll be. In this spot, we find the multi-layered story that speaks to both our theological but also emotional longing to understand God's timing. So if you would, would you please turn to John chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 1. Uh, This is actually a very long narrative, so we'll make a couple of jumps, but uh, I'll make notations of the other sections as we go along. So beginning in in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. Why don't you journey with me to verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
Travel with me to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if, only, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. In his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the, so the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, How could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. In this story, John beautifully narrates for us uh, our journey with Christ in places of uncertainty and loss of hope. Through the story of Lazarus, we see that in God's timing, we're actually formed in three stages. His delay, our desperation, and his future display. So let's begin with our first stage, his delay. Jesus' invitation for us to respond in faith. Notice that the theme of delay starts quite early in this narrative. I'm sure like many of you, one of the first notes you might have made is Jesus not being moved by the tyranny of the urgent. After receiving the news, we see in verse 6 that John says, when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We all, on some level, are moved by the tyranny of the urgent. We're late to work, class, the game, church even. Not any of you. Yet Jesus, slow in his pace, is not hurried at all by what could possibly be the most urgent request. Why is that? It's as if moved by love, Jesus delays his departure by two days, waiting for that divine signal. For in this delay, the Bethany family is strengthened in a way it couldn't have otherwise. Jesus then walking in the guidance of the divine time, even in the midst of the morning that surrounds him. Yet it's not only John, Jesus, but also John who illustrates and catches this theme of delay in his writing. John is not quick to give us a resolution of the story, taking approximately 44 verses to do so. In fact, John does this by using a communication device. For any grammar nerds here, 
known as tailhead linkage, in which the speaker or writer slows the pace of, his, of the story to amplify the peak of its drama. An example in English may be, I heard something, so I decided to take a look. And as I was taking a look, there's a repetitious redundancy in order to heighten what is there. John does this in verses 4, 12, 28 through 29, and, and verse 30, 43. Therefore, John matches Jesus' theme of delay in the narration of his story, leading Jesus himself to validate his reason for this delay. In verse 15, for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Patience is good for us, and I know many of you irk as I say that. The waiting, even if in the spiritual sense, the waiting affirms our faith in God's perfect timing. There's actually an interesting study on delayed gratification known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. There's a lot of experiments that go down there, and they never seem to go right, do they? So this is the experiment. Uh, Children are given the choice between one immediate reward, which is a marshmallow, or two if they waited for 15 minutes. Um, In follow-up studies, researchers actually found that the children who waited longer uh, tended to have better life outcomes, measured by SAT scores, educational attainment, body mass index, and other life measurements. My SAT scores probably prove that I was not good at waiting. (laughs) But even with that, it may be that some of you have yet to be convinced. In some respect, we all recognize that patience is a good virtue. It's good to wait. It's good to have patience. But to wait on God for our deepest longings pales in comparison. To wait on a job to provide for our family, to heal from trauma, to bear a child, to see a lost loved one again. As we've been going through this sermon series, we have created what is a travel journal where we've asked you to write questions or statements during our sermon series as you come along this journey with us. And here's one of the very first things I would like for you to note this particular question. What do you believe is God's purpose in his delay? What do you believe is God's purpose in his delay? For believers, the answer cannot be he doesn't care or that he's not there or he's despondent to our needs. Faith is an invitation to allow God's character to interpret our reality rather than our reality interpret God's character. I'll say that one more time. Faith is an invitation to allow God's character to interpret our reality rather than our reality, interpret God's. And this leads us to our next stage, desperation. Jesus' context to meet us in our pain through his presence. The pace of John's storytelling allows us to see the wave of emotion that captures 
that is captured by every character in this story. Martha, Mary, the disciples, and even Jesus himself. The disciples, moved by fear, question Jesus' departure. Jesus, moved by love, delays, but eventually goes to Bethany. Both Mary and Martha approach Jesus, desperately defeated. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary is approached with the present truth and a future promise. I am the resurrection and the life. While Martha is met with empathy and Jesus' emotions. Consider that a very important sequence. Jesus could have very easily spared the emotive episodes. Why not just heal Lazarus quicker? Yet Jesus waits and in fact not only bears the emotion of anger, but also sadness. And what is the shortest verse of the Bible? Verse 35, Jesus wept. It's in fact in this moment that Jesus meets Mary and Martha in their desperate state, not with an immediate solution, not with a healing, but the comfort of his presence through tears and grief. It's often desperation is seen in a negative light. None of us want to be there. And for the young people, especially in one's dating life, we laugh when Michael Scott from the show The Office, when he talks about his dating life, and he says, what is it like being single? I like it. I like starting each day with a sense of possibility. And I'm optimistic because every day I get a little bit more desperate, and desperate situations yield the quickest results. I spent, that got, that got no laughs in the eight o'clock, by the way. <laughs> but what, what if, what if desperation is actually a formative place for both our journey in spiritual maturity and also our intimacy with Jesus? C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, which if you don't know what Screwtape Letters is, it's a book about a a senior demon, Screwtape, writing to his nephew, Wormwood. They capture this quite well in this excerpt. And this is Screwtape writing to Wormwood. We cannot tempt to virtue as we do vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased, even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon the universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. What Lewis captures here in this, this narrative is that when we reach a point of desperation where it seems that God has vanished from our very sight and we still obey is some level of intimacy and strength in the Lord that is unbreakable. Here's another question to add to your travel journal. So then we must ask ourselves, what is the depth of intimacy God longs for 
that often can only be met in our desperation. What is the depth of intimacy that God longs for that often can only be met in our desperation? This leads us to our last stage, display. Jesus' declaration of power and glory over the enemy in his timing. There's a couple of reasons we know that Jesus' timing makes sense to us, looking back at the story. For one, many commentators noted that there's a rabbinic belief that the soul hovered the body of the deceased for only three days. On the fourth day, it saw the beginning of decomposition, leaving many to believe that is when the soul departed the body. Jesus doesn't reach Lazarus until when? The fourth day. As seen in verse 39. Now imagine the disciples. Imagine the Bethany sisters and the crowds having this in mind. How could one not be moved by faith? Second, the story functions as a sort of double entendre with a dual meaning of what's going on in this story. Jesus is glorified because he does something miraculous, raising Lazarus from the dead. But also, this is the event that leads to his arrest and passion, his ultimate glorification. John highlights the irony of this by using the word kraugazo, which is a a Greek term which means to shout or to cry out. When calling out Lazarus from the tomb, this is the same verb used by Jesus' enemies demanding his death. A final note is the reality of all believers in the future resurrection. If you look at the chart above, you can see that the same language that's used in Lazarus' story is actually used also in the depiction of our future state. John is pointing us to a theological truth in this narrative and a future promise The reality of this kingdom in the present and yet the future hope of our resurrection when all things will be made right in God's timing. So as you have your travel journals again, this is one final question I would love for you to write down. How then do we allow the times God has come through for us to be seared both in our mind and in our soul either through intervention or a promise? How do we allow the times God has come through for us to be seared both in our mind and in our soul, either an intervention or a promise, thus sustaining us in this journey of life? The application is next, and it seems very clear that John knows full well of this transitional state we live in, Our home is in heaven with with Jesus, in the heavens and the new earth. But yet we still live in this already but not yet reality of the kingdom. And in this space, the text calls us to deepen our faith by clinging to God's presence and his future promise in that intermediary space. And you may be asking, what is the practical step that I can do to mitigate this pain, to mitigate the hurt, and to speed Jesus along in this process. The reality is 
There is no answer to that. Truth is that we persevere in these moments not only through God's presence, but through the community of faith together. And it may be that you either know someone in a season of dissonance, heavy sorrow, and confusion, or this may be you yourself. So here's my challenge for us and the application for us all. Consider how you might be a blessing through your presence, or how might you receive that blessing. Or to put it another way, in the same way God was accompanying the Israelites in the wilderness, how can you be a companion in the wilderness? Jesus was not quick to heal Lazarus, but in fact met both sisters with empathy and genuine presence through grief and sorrow. Think of someone in your life that may be hurting or grieving in this way and join them in the wilderness as a fellow traveler. So see these steps as your guide, either for yourself or for someone else. Number one, join the individual in the wilderness as a fellow traveler, which means resist the temptation to stand apart from the emotion and existential questions they are wrestling with. Allow yourself to bear the weight of their grief. Second, identify the need of the moment. Listen and allow for individuals to talk through their experience. What emotions are at play? And what deeper struggles do these emotions suggest? And lastly, offer manna. How can you make the love of Christ more present to them? Locate sources of strength and encouragement to reinforce them and faith. Thus, the story of Lazarus is not only about clinging to the future promise of a resurrection, but allowing God to meet us in the dark spaces of this in-between time and inviting us to deeper intimacy with him. What's beautiful is that we as a community get to do that together. And I'll ask the worship team to come up um, and end with this story. You know, it's one thing to say that God will be with us in our darkest moments. It's another to actually believe it. And as I remember not too long ago, one of my toughest hours happened in the upper room. I had been without a job for a couple of months, And by this time, I had applied to so many places. No call, no interviews. I was bleeding my savings account. And yet, I was in that same breath, clinging to what I thought was the Lord's prompting to stay in Salem, with no prospect there either. Along with it, grief and sadness. Nobody wants me here. So please, release me, God. Let me go somewhere else. And as I entered this room with a bitter spirit, I fervently tried to pray the anger away. God, please let me know why I'm here or just let me go. And in all honesty, my time in Salem felt like a real waste in that brief moment. And during my prayer, I remember God whispered to me, Ephraim, 
Tell me what you want. I tried so desperately to ignore it because I knew what that meant. Ephraim, be vulnerable with me in this moment and be open enough to give your biggest dreams and expect that maybe some of them won't come true. So I desperately tried to ignore it because I knew exactly what he meant. Yet he continued, Ephraim, tell me what you want. Ephraim, tell me what you want. I tensed up, my veins popped, and my heart burst with anger. I don't give you what, I don't ask you what I want because you never give me what I want, I said. And in that moment, it would have been very easy for God to give me a subtle promise. Just wait. In time, you will see. But he didn't. In fact, all I remember is weeping and feeling the presence of God weeping with me. Uh, Months later, Rob Basham wants to meet. Can you guess where? The upper room. I sat down as I heard Rob offering the job I have right now. And I'm stunned because it's the job I wanted. It's as if God was listening to me. And I'm filled with tears as I ask kindly Rob to leave me alone in this room. Now don't be mistaken. The moral of this story isn't that I eventually got what I wanted. It's the fact that God met me in my darkest hour, in the place where I wanted him to be the farthest. He held me the closest. And I wept in gratitude. In the confusion of God's timing, I was met with patient love and built an intimacy that will carry me through another dark hour. And as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So let us pray. God, we recognize that your ways are higher than our ways, that your timing is sufficient and perfectly suited. And God, you ask us not to know this, but to respond in faith, that we trust in your goodness and mercy and know that you have the best for us, but yet still grieve and cry with us in the hardest moments. And we await the hope of what will soon be you making everything right. So God, we give this to you. We love you and we know that you are good. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.